This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Territory Story Podcast. Pregnant pause. I know. I was just waiting for you to sort of jump in there. I thought I'd, I'd give you one of uh, one of uh, the uh, curveballs you give me. <laughs> <laughs> I generally don't give you plain silence, but that's okay. <laughs> Hello, Leon. I'll introduce myself tonight if you like. Go ahead. My name's Peter. I'm the co-host of this thing, which is rapidly coming off the rails by the sound of it. <laughs> well, you've always said to me, Pete, that, you know, some of these pregnant pauses are a good thing to have in podcast. And mm-hmm. I tend to be obviously the um, untrained one. So I tend to jump in and feel every pregnant pause. <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning. Very good. I can't say you've learned from the best, but you've learned. Right, right. Well, mate, um, we've got a very interesting guest uh, on the podcast. Well, I hope he is. He certainly sounds interesting on LinkedIn. I hadn't heard of him at all until yesterday uh, morning, Um, yesterday being Sunday because we record on Monday. Um, I was flicking through LinkedIn, as I do from time to time, and I saw a post there by Chansey Paik, who is the member for... I can't remember which seat in Alice Springs. but Somewhere down south. No, no, it's the seat that old mate lost uh, or didn't contest. Oh, formerly Stuart. Formerly Stuart. Yeah, now yeah. Gawaja, is it? Yeah, Gawaja. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like it. Right. Anyway, so Chansey Peg, member for Gawaja, po- uh, posted something up on LinkedIn and it was a picture of uh, Duran Young uh, in Parliament House and having that whole ceremony with the... Um, Indigenous guys from the Daly region uh, in there doing um, doing uh, a welcome ceremony or, or something like that. I can't. I'm not exactly sure what it was. And uh, there was a fairly lengthy post there by uh, Chancy Paik about how he was very proud to have um, four. I think he said four um, Indigenous members in Parliament. And. And then I start to flick through the comments, and everyone was uh, swooning, and you know it was quite loving. And then there was Keith Gregory, and his post caught my attention uh, to the point where I thought, "Hang on, I need to contact this guy and get him on the podcast because hmm. he." seems to have something very interesting to say about all of this. So on that note, I'd like to introduce you and to our esteemed listeners, Mr. Keith Gregory. Keith, welcome to the Territory Story podcast. Thank you very much, Leon, and uh, and uh, great to meet you both. I look, uh, I look forward to having a bit of a yarn with you. Welcome, Keith. So, Keith, um, before we get into the whole post on LinkedIn and and you know and your response to it, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, you mentioned that you've you've been in the territory for four years, which, as far as the territory is concerned, that's a lifetime. So you're well and truly a territorian. Um, but <laughs> where are you originally from? And uh, give us uh, you know details of your background. Okay, well, I'm commonly known as a Mexican from south of the border, not so much uh, South Australia, but from Perth. Um, 
we originally, a, a, an Aboriginal woman and myself, who was actually uh, NAIDOC Elder of the Year in 2008, um, Carol Pedersen and I were invited up here by the NT government because we had developed a, um, a micro-business unit called Bush Tucker Fusion, which we had developed um, really for Aboriginal family units because when you look at any community or society in the world, you've got to have health, you've got to have education, and you've got to have an economic base. So we, we came up here, and that would have been uh, January five years ago, um, met with the government. The government liked the, loved the idea. Um, Auntie Carol stayed for 10 days. I stayed for three months. And I could see the disparity in the streets. You, It was everywhere. In Perth, you don't see the disparity like you see the disparity here with our First Nations people. So, and Keith, Keith, can I just stop you there? Because I, I want you to take us right back to where you were born. I want you to talk to us about your your family, your parents. You know, we want to get a full picture of Keith Gregory. You sound like my psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> he charges um, a lot more, though, Keith. <laughs> I better make it quick then, Peter. <laughs> okay, so I, I should. I'll, I'll start off the whole bit again. Mm -hmm. um, by saying, um, I uh, to give you a little bit of a history of, of where I'm from and, and my family history, uh, I was born in Narromine in New South Wales 63 years ago. Um, I come from farming stock, so I have spent most of my life on, pretty much all my life on farms. Um, and, you know, farming kids... We start driving the tractor at 10 years old. Um, and even, you know, when I left school, I went straight to a station um, in Western Australia and spent three years on that station, learned how to break horses and then commenced, I suppose, what was a, a career that spanned about four years breaking horses in West Australia and then in New Zealand. So can I just, uh, just uh, 10 years old, that seems very young to be shipped across the country. What was the story there? Uh, no, I wasn't shipped across this country at 10 years old. Well, you said Western Australia. Oh, yes, but we moved around as a family, sorry. Oh, I see. Right. So as, 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 as a family, my father was a, um, my father was a, uh, a manager, farming manager, and uh, he spent some, well, we spent some time in New South Wales, uh, then in Esperance, and finally moved up to, to Perth where um, we lot fed cattle. Um, <clears throat> my, my schooling finished at ele year 11, and um, that's when I was shipped out to a, a station up in north. To, right, uh, year 11, okay. At, at, uh, in Shark Bay. Um, where I spent some three years mustering with all the horse, all the mustering's done on horseback. It's too rough for motorbikes. There I learned how to um, how to break in horses, and uh, returned to Perth and started my own horse breaking business. And I was what I think around about eighteen then, eighteen nineteen. Um, from there went to New Zealand breaking in horses, and it was while I was in New Zealand 
that um, I decided I needed a change in life, that there was no real future in what I was doing. So then I went back to Perth and um, studied business administration. Where um, did you do that? I did that at Perth TAFE. Mm-hmm. So from from there I joined a company at the time called uh, General Credits that was uh, gobbled up by uh, AGC and I worked in commercial property finance for some around about 13 or 14 years. Um, and then from there uh, made a huge move. I met a, um, a woman who some years ago had been swept out to sea off the Philippine coast and had quite a miraculous um, uh, intervention or whatever you like to call it. She was found 120 kilometres off to sea. They called her the Aussie Mermaid. Um, and I met her. We were married. Then we spent some four years um in America, in Australia, she was a public speaker in, in churches. Um, at that time in life, we we had a child come along, my son Asher, or our son Asher. Uh, he was born autistic, within the, actually within the severe spectrum of autism. Um, the system at the time told us that he we had to accept he was autistic and that he would never function in society. Um, we are both very, very headstrong people, myself and my wife, and we, we didn't want to accept that. We found a system called Applied Behavioural Analysis, or ABA, um, that was a practice here in Australia. We found a book which we had sent from America. That book had a, uh, a section in the back where Murdoch University had actually had students practice, their psychology students practice ABA for a 12-month period. Um, At that point in time, I had moved um, into the property market and I was um, working for a company that that built new homes. So I was a, a sales and design. Um, Webb and Brown Neves are a, a high-end building company. I think probably their average contract price is somewhere about a million dollars. So uh, I was on a very good wicket, which enabled me to go and get all those students who had done that program at Murdoch University, and they became my son's, um, uh, well, they were his therapists, you could say them. Uh, he had 30 hours of therapy a week. So we have a, a, a child that even at the age of five had no speech. Um, he is now a sought-after live sound technician here in Darwin working for E3 Productions. Um, I see a great correlation between the way the system treats um, Aboriginal children to the way the system treated my son, which would basically say it's too hard, nothing can be done. Um, so that is, I suppose, where my um, passion and drive comes from to empower children. Um, and it was part of the reason why 
I came up here. I mean, we have this. I have this belief that if you're going to change any um, any community in the world, then you have to have health, education, and economic base. Any one of those elements will not survive without the other. Um, when the swine flu came through in 2009, um, and after I'd been caught in the property crash of 2009, and going back, we were doing, uh, we were buying houses and and um, and renovating them. Um, and when the when the property came crash came through, uh, you know, just decimated that part of the industry. So we sold up everything and. The swine flu came through, so then I looked at what were the challenges. Uh, that Kevin Rudd at the time actually said that we needed to get all the children to wash their hands. And there was a great pushback from mothers. It was very interesting because they were saying, well, there's no soap in schools. You know, how can work children wash their hands? And the reason, so I thought, well, why is there no soap in schools? What I found out was that um, one thing, none of our schools covered by the health department the chinese restaurant is but not your local government school so as soon as the school's um soap supply had run out which it did very very quickly because kids used to vandalize the soap then there'll be no soap so i invented a handle a vandal proof hand hygiene system um and then looked at how do we actually get the children to want to wash their hands so I came up with something loosely based on the way we brought my son out of his autism. Um, and, of course, part of that is, I mean, ABA is very unique. And so, in, in a very loose way, it's like teaching a puppy. You get the puppy to sit and you give the puppy a reward. And you get the puppy to sit again, you give the puppy a reward. So it's constant reward to create habitual behaviour. So I started creating, I started thinking about what influences children? How do you, how do you capture children's interest? And then I thought about what Disney does. What do Disney do? So every child likes a story. They like reward. They look for heroes in their lives. So I developed this vision of an online game and a story that called all children um, to be community hygiene warriors, you know, to look after family, community and country and be the ones that drive change. The, so I took that concept and I thought, now, the most disadvantaged are Aboriginal children in remote communities. So that's where my focus was. And that's where my focus has been for over a decade now. Um, part of that whole thing, I had a very good relationship with the, um, with the WA Health Department. They had um, 14 children caught strep A in, um, up in Columbaroo. So the Health Department thought this is the perfect location to, to try this online game situation. So I went up there. And what I found were um, kids that were really bright, um, engaging. They had nothing to do. It was absolutely nothing to do. 
they had a great tourism industry during the during the dry season as many fishermen would come up and that's when i developed an initiative called bush tucker fusion which was just taking a massively big wood-fired oven and basically what you do is you um you put uh, bush tucker in what we call you know, street foods and the most typical one of course were pizzas so i went back to perth and, and that's where Andy carol pedersen and myself developed this idea of, of, of bush tucker fusion and we sent it round to to queensland and to the northern territory and the northern territory stuck up their hands and said, we love this situation this idea um they had a funding program called um, Community Champions, I think it was called, which fitted in with exactly what they wanted to do. So we came up here um, and I was just, I was blown away by what I saw in the main street um, of, of Darwin, the disparity. Um, you know, people that were absolutely lost, sitting there begging, um, Auntie Carol stayed 10 days. I stayed three months. Why and, did she leave, uh, Keith? Uh, because her plane was flying out that afternoon. <laughs> we were only here. We were only here for 10 days. Right. Um, I mean, Auntie, I'll give you an idea. That was, uh, that was what, five years ago. Auntie Carol only retired last year at the age of 80. Uh, she was a justice of the court, was a justice of the peace, very, um, I mean, she was NAIDOC Elder of the Year in 2008. In WA, she has the keys basically to any uh, politician's front door. It's a very, very well-respected woman. Um, but I, I just said to Auntie Carol, I said, look, I'm, I need to be in the Northern Territory. If I'm going to make a change anywhere, um, looking at the fact that you can't walk out of the front the front door of Ward Keller, possibly without seeing a countryman in the street, um, and the disparity. So I went back to Perth, packed everything up. Um, I had three large ovens, which we got ready, and then with my son we came back to Darwin. Um, and that was in August 2017. Now, what I can say about the Northern Territory and Darwin is that if you think that you're going to come from down south and teach people how to suck emu eggs, forget about it. Correct. Um, there's a great pushback, and it doesn't matter how enthusiastic you are. Um, they do not like being anybody coming up with different ideas. And, of course, I'm an ideas person or I'm passionate. And so with great enthusiasm, I reached out and engaged with as many people as I could. Um, it wasn't long before I started hitting brick walls, uh, which is very, very sad because what I believe that we had developed um, and I still believe to this day will change the lives of any child and especially Aboriginal children. Mm -hmm. um, so it has been um, quite a battle for the last four years 
and trying to reach out to Aboriginal organisations. I had a, Aunty Carol's got a very good relationship with Ken Wyatt. Um, we've had four meetings with Ken Wyatt. Um, but there is this um, attitude towards what would be commonly called blackfella money up here, um, money that is set aside by the government for um, the improvement of First Nations peoples. However, it is deemed that that money can only go through organisations that are Aboriginal controlled. It doesn't matter how good the the idea may be, and if you can't engage with those organisations, then you don't get a look in. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so what what uh, fund are you talking about there, Keith? Well, you have the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which would give you some idea of, of that pool of money. Um, that's $5.9 billion over the next five, four years. Um, and it is, it's there to um, advance the, uh, the position of Aboriginal people in any way, whether it be health, whether it be education, um, prosperity. Um, but it is heavily guarded. Uh, and look, by there whom? are... By whom? Mm. Uh, Nacho, Pat Turner, <laughs> anybody else that that uh, it has the ear of government, um, and it makes it very very hard. It, it, and it's very sad because at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and it to me it doesn't matter who has a possible solution. We should all be working together. Um, and this space operates in silos. You will have people working in ear health. You'll have people working in eye health and skin health. Um, the crazy thing is that nobody's worked out that the ears are just around the corner from the eyes. So what will happen is you'll have ear health people go out and engage with, with Aboriginal children and people, but they probably have the qualification to have a check, have a look at their eyes and their teeth and oral health and all sorts of things, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And that is about, and this is what upsets people because I talk about this, I openly talk about it. Um, that is about people projecting their own little plot or pot of, of grant money. And in the Northern Territory, that is, this is how the Territory survives. And that's sad because it's based off, in, in many occasions, based off the disparity because millions of dollars come from Canberra to the Territory based off the disparity of Aboriginal people. Um, you know, we can sugarcoat it and not talk about it, but I think we need to talk about it. Mm. So this is why you find that you will, I will be, and I'm very surprised, Leon, it's taken you so long to find me. Because <laughs> We've been looking, haven't we, Pete? <laughs> because I don't hold back. Good. And the reason, and, you know, I am I am quite aggressive in my approach to things and I, I, I call people out and I call organisations that receive millions of dollars and say, where are the KPIs? Where, where is the change that you have made over the last 10 or 15 years? Mm. Because as territorians, and I imagine 
Well, I'm assuming that both of you are Territorians have been here a long time. You will know that the, the change is glacial. It really is glacial. And if we're thinking about putting people on Mars, <laughs> if we've got people who can fly a plane into space, albeit for seven minutes or something, um, you know, why can't, why is this still existing in a country that's so rich? Okay. Keith, you've, you've been absolutely gracious in giving us your story. There's a couple of things I do want to uh, pick out um, yeah. before we launch into this discussion, which you have set up beautifully. Yeah. Um, first of all, do you have an Indigenous connection? Are you Okay. What I, have, what I have mentioned, my mum committed suicide when I was five. Um, look, I've had a lot of Aboriginal women say to me, you are Aboriginal, you just don't know it. I quite frankly, on, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'm a human being mm -hmm. and um, I don't know much about my, my mother's side of the family. Uh, my father didn't like my mother. Um, Were they together when she passed away? Yeah. Right. They were together. Um, my mum was uh, bipolar. My mum was bipolar. Right. Um, I am probably bipolar. Um, I take medication every day, but that's fine. Well, it's not fine really because I ran out of medication on Friday. So you guys are lucky that I'm on an I'm on a high at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know anything about bipolar? You're either euphoric or you're <laughs> so you're good on a Monday, but not so much on a Tuesday. I'll, I'll be I think there's a song life. about that, isn't there? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so where were we, Leon? You. So I asked you if you had an, an, an Aboriginal connection. Yeah, um, yeah. So, no, simply, and the, and the reason why I asked was, and, and I really respect your answer that you don't care. I mean, that's that's uh, tremendous. But I, I asked because you know. The the way these things generally work is if you are going to uh, propose a solution to a a problem that is uh, involves um, uh, indigenous organisations, and you are not uh, or you don't have an indigenous connection, then you're already on the back foot. It seems you're further back than fullback, Leon. Right. You, you People would really, understand that. You, 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 <laughs> there's no further back and fullback. <laughs> you're in the crowd at that point. Oh, you're in the crowd. You didn't even you didn't even get a Guernsey for the game. <laughs> right, right. And um, so while you were talking and you mentioned the IAS, the um yes. the uh, Indigenous Advancement Strategy, I started having a look at that. Uh, and I must admit, I've never come across this before, so it's uh, really great to learn. And I hope uh, you know I'm able to take some people along the journey with me. Um, the IAS appears to be a Commonwealth government initiative, and you are absolutely correct and spot on when you said it's uh, uh, the 21-22 budget allocated 5.7 billion dollars over four years. Uh, and what is this money to be used for? Under the IAS, grant opportunities are available for the following six programs. Jobs, land and economy, children and schooling, safety and well-being, culture and capability, remote Australia, remote Australia strategies and research and evaluation. Now, you're, you were proposing or have you applied for any of this funding, Keith? No. 
No, well, we 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 did. The program that I developed addresses youth suicide. We had long conversations with um, Minister Wyatt. This is Auntie Carol Pedersen and myself around um, the program being developed for youth suicide. Um, unfortunately, at the time, at the time, PHN, which is a primary health network, which every state has one. We have one here in the Northern Territory. Uh, primary Health Network in WA decided to go with a um, uh, community-based model which was based on lived experience um, and centred around Aboriginal people coming up with solutions around, um, around youth suicide. So we missed out there. Um, a lot of people will say, and look, a lot of people do this, a lot of organisations look to fund themselves through Aboriginal money um, or what's considered Aboriginal money. Uh, and sadly, it is, I'll be honest, it's an industry and it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And well, it's clearly, not just oh, five billion. We are talking about 30 odd billion dollars a year that is spent in the space of the disparity for Aboriginal people. That's Where does that money go? Uh, they tried to track it. They, honestly, they try, They really can't tell where it all goes. But I can tell you where it's not going. It's not going to keep quickly, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and the sad thing is that there's no real return on that money. Where We have a thing called closing the gap. We're not closing the gap. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, a little later on, I'll talk about my theory behind why we're not closing the gap. Um, but uh, you know, it's a lot of money. But there are a lot of people in, employed in that industry. You think about it, you know, 20% um, of the people employed in Darwin City are there because of the disparity. Can you imagine if every Aboriginal person was suddenly healthy, financially independent um, and and didn't need to be managed per se, all those all, that twenty percent would be unemployed because you don't mm. you don't need people to so called manage Aboriginal people anymore. So the cynical side of me wonders whether or not we really want to um, address those challenges and support change, which is rather sad. Uh, there are many Aboriginal people who have the same belief. Um, you speak to Aboriginal people out on country and, you know, they, they shake their heads and say, you know, the whole thing's a mess. How can, how, can we not have, how can we not have drinkable water at larger Manu and yet put people on the moon? Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Don't I'm just stunned. I'm, I'm just, I, I continue to be stunned at the amount of money that is seemingly available that, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still a little bit perplexed as to why you haven't applied for any of this funding based on, you know, the programs that you're talking about, Greg Keith. Look, it's, it's not a, you have to have Aboriginal people walking with you. I, I can't, um, if you don't have Aboriginal people walking with you, you go nowhere. So organisations like Nacho or SNAKE um, or AMSAT, 
you've got to have them say AMSAT in, in the Northern Territory. If they're not walking with you. What is AMSAT? Uh, AMSAT is basically, um, I can't think of the name. It, it's Aboriginal, it's an overarching Aboriginal health organisation that uh, looks after or engages with Aboriginal controlled health within the Northern Territory. So, um, you know, if you're not walking with AMSAT or Danila Dilba, then government won't talk to you. And the reason being is that the pushback from organisations like that is huge. If they start going and funding some fat white guy from down south who has come to the Territory, uh, still wet behind the ears, and who wants to bring a new idea to the table, which is very, very sad because that is really uh, what we need. You can't keep bouncing the ball against the wall and expect a different something different to happen. And Keith, if you think it, yeah. Sorry, just as you're speaking, I'm thinking, so, you, you know, you mentioned some of these organisations by name. It, are you saying that they're unapproachable to put these sorts of ideas to in, in, in a joint venture situation? Yes. They'll ignore you. Right. I have been ignored. Look, I don't have a problem with that. I'm a big boy. Because uh, they want to come up with the ideas or they've got other ideas they want to pitch or? I, I think um, I think you have to do a territory story with them. Right. You know, um, there are many reasons and excuses put forward and a lot of them, you know, as to why there's no change. And they'll talk about racism, they'll talk about colonisation, they talk about all the reasons why, they'll talk about um, white mob not acknowledging the past and we can't move forward till we acknowledge the past, till the white mob acknowledge the past. There's all these reasons why we can't have change. Mm. And the fact is, now this, this is the kicker, Anywhere in the world, the only people that can change a community is the community themselves. They have to have the desire to want to change. No mm. government, nobody can go into a community and change that community. Mm. So we've, we've just had a big national thing about um, women being bashed. Um, and there is a sector... The Aboriginal sector said, oh, we, we must have our own uh, national initiative around this, which I'm sad to say is going to be another CEO on $350,000 a year with a whole another large organisation set up in a capital city somewhere to, you know, do their own um, initiatives around how do you stop Aboriginal women being bashed. Now, the thing about Aboriginal culture is that nobody can speak for somebody else's people. You can't speak for Yongu people. Look, uh, people down in Canberra, people in, in these Aboriginal control organisations cannot speak on behalf of Yongu. Only Yongu can speak on their behalf. Only Tiwi can speak on their behalf. It is part of their culture. They, these are nations of peoples. We, we have been 
Um, and this is this is the wonderful thing about the territory is that our Aboriginal culture up here is still very very strong. And unfortunately, for colonisation and colonisation happening much much earlier um, in Sydney or in Perth and whatever, um, they have a perception of culture, but that perception of culture is far far different than the reality of culture out on Yolngu country. You, you do not, Yolngu people will get very, very angry if you speak on their behalf and they'll tell you, you don't speak for me. We are our own people, which gets back to the fact that only they can facilitate change and it has to be the desire of the community to want change. Now, what colonisation has done is stripped away the power and the authority of the leaders. I mean, that's how you conquer people. You, you know, shoot the generals, shoot the leaders, and then the army can't function without the leaders. So this is what's happened within Aboriginal, you know, within our people, that that uh, the, the colonisation has seduced Aboriginal people to, to believe that they can't do anything without government. The fact is, it is not government that will create the change. It is the community themselves that will create the change. And this will lead into my passion about the children, which I call lost to the streets. We have this, um, we have this challenge in Darwin. We have the same challenge in Townsville, in Broome, in Alice Springs of, of, of kids running amok. And it is intergenerational. And we haven't been able to address it. You know, we've been locking um, we've been locking Aboriginal people up for 250 years. We perceive it as the way you change behaviour is to lock, put people in jail. But you know what the sad thing is? If you go into the prison up here in Darwin and start speaking to people, you will hear you will hear some men say, Oh, it's much better inside here than what it is out on on country. Mm. How sad is that? Yeah. You know, they come in there, they've got a chance to get off the grog. They get three meals a day. They have access to clean water, a bed. You know, they work and uh, they actually get paid for working in prison. Mm. But I think it's an indictment on the billions of dollars that we spend where you have... An Aboriginal person saying, oh, "I'd rather be in here than back on my home country," yeah. and that you know that makes that makes those elders very yeah. very sad back on our country. It really does. I bet it does. Hey, uh, Keith, just one question going back a little bit. You said something earlier about um, you know change can't happen without white man accepting responsibility for the ways of the past and. I guess partially the present as well. Is is that not what Kevin Rudd did, or is that was that not enough, or was it was it not done the right way, or no? It's bullshit. You probably have to edit that out. No. It's not true because you know something. Uh, I have seven thousand contacts on LinkedIn. Five thousand of them are Aboriginal. Somebody should have told those successful Aboriginal people that they can't be successful until the white mob acknowledge the past. I'm mm. sorry, but it is a load of crap. Somebody needs right. to tell 
somebody needs to tell uh, uh, Ash Barty that she can't be the number one tennis yeah. player in the world. Mm. It, it's, it's it's a an excuse. It's an, look, it is part of the rhetoric that uh, is used really um, by some people, not all people, yeah. uh, you know, to say, oh, you know, we can't do this, you know, racism stops. Uh, racism is the reason why we can't get ahead. Racism mm. not the reason you can't get ahead. Yes, racism exists. Leon, I guarantee you are the man of colour. You've probably come across racism. Um, you know, it's... It's something that will never disappear, but you can empower children not to be impacted on by racism, you know, to let it, you know, uh, to ignore it. And that will annoy me. Some people will be annoyed at me saying that. And I don't say, I say, you know, always call out racism, but don't let it be something that stops you from moving ahead. But Keith, it's more than that because, you know, I heard very, very strongly your words before, and um, I think I've told this story before um, uh, where, uh, look, <laughs> attitude's everything, and at the end of the day, I mean, you know, you told a, a really powerful story earlier when it came to your son, and mm. born to certain parents in certain cultures and certain parts of the world, he would have been resided to a shocking life. Yes. Let, let me tell you. Including uh, Australia. Correct. Uh, and it's it's interesting to me because, you know, uh, it's a long story and it's probably not for this podcast, but something that I was taught from a very young age is there's no such word as can't, right? And, you know, I, I'm a big believer in that, that the, the stars and the moon's align for a reason sometimes and that attitude that you just discussed then is exactly in line with what you know you felt when you were told that your son had basically not much of a life to live so that that's an attitude thing and that comes you know from you and passed on and passed on um and i, I couldn't agree with you more there's people in life who look for an excuse in anything and uh you know what a great example ash barty um and there's, there's many other examples of it where, you know, you, you don't just say, well, because I'm this background or this heritage or I've got this obstacle, that therefore I can't achieve. But sadly, Peter, when the, um, and there's no blight against you, mm. but when the AFL uh, scouts come up here, yep. they look for a Rioli. They don't look for a bloke by the name of Gowers. Yeah. Yeah. What does that say to you? It says that Aboriginal people can be special and, you know, that if your name is Rioli, that there is an element in your DNA that is exceptional. Yep. All of us can be exceptional. Yep. This is why, this is what this program called the Go Kids Fund or the Go Kids Club does. It empowers children to believe in themselves no matter what the situation is. Hmm. We have uh, elite athletes speaking into the lives of children every morning, telling them, you are great, you are fantastic, and you, you've you achieved from what you did yesterday and academically you've achieved. Yep. Um, we're probably running out of time and I haven't even talked about um, 
and I haven't even talked about, I, I, don't, I don't know whether you can carve this up. Should I still go on and talk about? The best thing about a podcast, Keith, there's no time limits, my friend. Right. Okay, so when going back to, to what happened with the swine flu and creating that online children's club, which was based on uh, constant reward plus having an online avatar as a mentor um, and, the, and a story and the children being empowered through a daily story. Um, this is what will change the children out in remote communities and we're getting very, very close to that. You know, we, I have spoken to some people recently in the last few days um, one woman who's been out in remote communities for 40 years with her husband, and she's saying this will work. This idea of empowering each individual child, no matter what their situation is, that is, is this will work. It's what we did with my son. We kept on every time he achieved something, the, immediate, the reward was immediate, and he kept on working for those rewards, which created habitual behaviour. I'll give you an example. Imagine if uh, you've got a wristband, an RFID wristband, you have a um, an app on a phone, a rewards app, and whenever the child achieves anything, you swipe the wristband, which gives the child points online. And those points then are towards getting a football or a T-shirt or anything. Now, Tommy's not – well, Peter's not very good at maths. Last week he got two out of 20. This week he got four out of 20. And the teacher said, Peter, here's 2,000 points towards your football. Now, Peter's a very smart, he is street smart. And he says to the teacher, Miss, if I get six right next week, will you give me 4,000 points? Yeah, Peter, no worries at all. Well, Peter goes, do you know where I can find a tutor? And what we do is we employ tutors out in those remote communities, Aboriginal people who have a, a, an education, who come in and get paid $25 an hour or $30 an hour to choose tutor Peter. Now, your eyes are on the football. You don't really care about maths. But next week when you get six right, you're back at the bargaining table. After a while... Peter's getting 18 out of 20 right, and it goes from extrinsic rewards to intrinsic rewards. You now know you can do maths. So mm. suddenly you set him back saying, hang on, I can do maths. Mm. And there's a great pride in ha having achieved that. So this is how ABA works. You know, it, it, it engages children where you they are disengaged. Yeah. So this is why... People believe it will work. And we have leading uh, psycho um, behavioural psychologists in, in uh, Sydney University wanting to engage with this. We have a lot of people who are saying this has the capacity to work. The Australian, um, the Australian uh, president of the Principals Association said we need to pilot this. Yeah. You know, so, and this can be done in all schools. And we have just, as a matter of interest, um, 
WA, Victorian and Queensland education ministers have just said, we want the Go Kids Club in all the schools. WA, Vic and Queensland? Yeah. Okay, and all Labor. All Labor. And, yeah. and but it's... That's only because I haven't approached New South Wales. Okay. Was, yeah, fair enough. I have approached They're a bit busy the, at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know something? I have approached the Northern Territory government. Yep. There yeah. is no interest. Donuts. Yeah, okay. No interest. What what about a um what about a uh either a, a self-run pilot program or approaching some of the private schools who who've got uh alternative funding? Do you know what, what has happened in the last um, few days, especially down in Alice Springs, um, with the strong women's groups? And there's another, there's a lady down there, funnily enough, she's English. Um, her and her husband are the ones that have been out in these remote communities for 40 years. The funding may well come from a joint venture with a strong Aboriginal group not associated with any of the mainstream uh, Aboriginal organisations, mm. but rather a, a strong women's group who want to, so, you know, they're not about money, they're about change. Yep. So we, and we have some other people who um, are very keen to see CDU involved in the pilot. The thing is, Peter and Leon, all we need to do is build the website. That's all we need to do. And it's very interactive and it's not cheap to build. But once you build the first website, then every school or community have their own website. So the mm. back end is developed. The front end is co-developed. So in a remote community, the strong men and women will decide, they will determine the challenges and the solutions and what the rewards will be. And right. the children will get rewards for undertaking the solutions. Mm. You know, I've got a saying, work with the clay, not the brick. The children are the clay. If we can influence children, um, one of the rewards is, is that if you have a shower at home every night, if you clean your teeth, if you wash your hands, you can say to mum, mum, you've got to give me 500 reward points for having a shower. If you... When uh, Rhys Kershaw was up here, and he's, you'd know, you'd know Rhys Kershaw, um, Leon, he was the former commissioner for police. I met with Rhys. He loved the idea. Why? Because all police would have the app on their phone. If a child went up and had a positive interaction with a police officer, he'd give them 500 reward points. Mm. So suddenly you're building relationships with police. Now, and a lot of times in this space, police are painted as the boogeyman. Oh, we don't like the police. They're bad. You know, the BLM movement, police kill Aboriginal people. Police don't kill Aboriginal people. You know, yes, sure, we've got a case at the moment uh, at Yindamu where a police officer did kill an Aboriginal person. But generally they don't. Um so we're really influencing the way children engage with authority, the way they engage with their um, education. And do you know something? The single most simple thing we can do is have children use soap and water. 
Soap and water will address gluea. It will address address a lot of the skin issues that they have. It will address uh, um, what's it called the eye one. I can't think of it at the moment. Um, but this is why we have the highest rates of, of, of gluea uh, or otitis media and of scabies and all these sorts of things that are nowhere else in the world. And let's simple, not forget uh, rheumatic heart fever. And do you know how rheumatic heart fever starts? Just a simple infection in the skin. Correct, correct. So whilst we spend, Leon, millions of dollars studying rheumatic heart fever, it's simple. Get the kids to start using soap and water through a program that rewards them for using soap and water. And what happens is that when you have a child, and this is proven, if somebody um, repeats something for three months, it becomes habitual behaviour. So if you have children who are going home and having a shower or going home and cleaning their teeth, eventually it will become part of their habits. They'll enjoy the feeling of having clean teeth, of having a shower, of washing their hair. And they'll influence the adults. And it, you can imagine in 20 years' time, we'll have the space will look totally different. We'll have educated children with lots of footballs because that's what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Educated you with lots of footballs that have a great relationship with police that uh, it's part of their code you don't bash women, you know, that we respect each other that we have a shower, so you can influence a whole generation. And here's the thing, Keith. Yep. Let's say, right, we do nothing else but test it. We can't be worse off than we currently are, right? And it won't cost uh, five-point-something billion dollars over four years either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, yeah. It's been long talked about that there's NGOs and, uh, you know, Indigenous organisations that uh, do a lot of stuff and, and you know, work, work towards the betterment of the First Nation peoples and we understand that. But, um, look, I, I've got a 30,000-foot view of what you're describing, but it... It all seems pretty common sense stuff to me. And, you know, it's not lost on me the fact that it was only, well, probably 18 months ago now that the number one thing we were told in this country was to wash your hands. I mean, it's a pretty basic concept when you think about it, but, we're, you know, we're still going through a pandemic where one of the main things you can do to help yourself is wash your hands. And having a daily shower and cleaning your teeth seems pretty basic, but we don't live in remote communities, so we don't know what it's like. But we hear that housing's shocking. There's not enough houses. There's too many people in houses, and that's why, you know, these things like the heart disease and, and other third-world diseases are, are still rampant. So, like I said, if nothing else but trying your ideas is attempted, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, it's exactly right. And this, this element of, of the Go Kids Club, which used to be called Deadly Guardians, but I changed it to Go Kids Club because 
of the education, the WA and Victoria and Queensland Education Department wanting it in all mainstream schools. And, of course, mm. it really, and GO, G-O-E stands for Guardians of Earth. And, and that feeds into the story where the Intergalactic Health Council, so we have a story that comes out one chapter every week. Uh, I think the, the writer's up to chapter 22 before, when we stopped her. But it's basically a story uh, written 10 years ago when the swine flu pandemic was on, and it's a story about the Intergalactic Health Council looking down the earth and seeing a battle between the, 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 um, the superbugs and the scientists. Two yeah. celestial guardians are sent to Earth to gather all the children to save the world. Mm. So now it's called Guardians of Earth. The story hasn't changed, but you're empowering children from grade one. And I don't know if you guys have got kids, but you try telling a three-year-old, you're in charge of everybody taking off their shoes at the front door and you watch what happens. <laughs> they become little monsters. <laughs> they become worse than the Taliban walking around with sticks telling women to cover up their legs. I can tell you yeah. they are. And that's an influencer. Yeah. And, and, this is, and this is why we have the approach for 40, 50, 100 years has been trying to influence adults. It mm. doesn't work. Work, don't work with a brick, work with the clay. Influence the children. Let the children drive change. Mm. Um, and okay. Keith, yep. I, I've heard you speak a lot and I have, uh, I have been doing some research as you have been talking because I, I want to ask some pointed questions. Yes. The territory's population is about 250,000, Okay. The Aboriginal population in the Territory is about 75,000. It's about 30%. 30%, sorry, 80% of Aboriginals live in remote or very remote areas. Mm -hmm. The question that I have as a Territorian, without wanting to sound racist, without wanting to be disrespectful of Aboriginal culture, just being pragmatic and looking for, as you say, solutions uh, that are going to work in the long term. How much sense does it make to continue building houses in the middle of nowhere um, and, and, and trying to service all those communities? I, I'm just asking because I, I don't know and I don't understand why we do it other than because those are traditional homelands. And, you know, we, Pete and I have spoken to Malcolm Turnbull on this podcast, no less, who's told us in no uncertain terms, we've been telling Aboriginal people for 200 years what to do. We're, gonna, we're not going to continue doing that. So as a result of that attitude, we've got these billions of dollars, billions flowing into apparently these areas, although no one can see what, what results there are, apart from a few houses that have been built, and, and question mark whether those houses are fit for purpose. If you speak to some people that I've spoken to, they'll tell you no. Um, why, why are we following these policies? And I ask you that, Keith, before you answer. Let me have a little bit of a soapbox on this one. I ask you that. Because if Pete and I decided one day 
we've had enough of civilization um, and the city, and we are going to go as far away as possible into the bush, somewhere in the territory, and stick um, a flag down somewhere and decide we want to live there. Could we demand that the Australian government and the Territory government support us by building houses out there and putting infrastructure and delivering health and education outcomes? Now, that could go down like a lead balloon in some quarters in the Territory, but I'm willing to take that risk because I, I just want to have an open and honest conversation about this. Okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, it's like having a, uh, a ship that you're trying to repair and you're mucking around with the anchor and the anchor system when it's the rudder that needs attention. We don't understand. We have policies around this is what we need to do to fix things. So I'll start with that one comment. Then I'll go back to 65,000 years of culture and we talk about having the oldest living culture in the world and we romanticise about how wonderful this is. If you take traditional Aboriginal people away from where they live, you will kill the culture. It will disappear. Um, they will become westernised like a lot of Aboriginal people have in Perth and in the major capital cities. Um, plus, you will have more people sitting outside Ward Keller on the footpath begging. Because Would you, though? Would you? Because yes, you, you will. Because they, you've got 65,000 years imprinted in the DNA of the people that operated and, and they were... What, so why on earth are we building houses out there? 65,000 years ago, people weren't living in houses. Right. Well, what's, what colonisation has done and what what uh, um, white people have done have said, you've got to have a certain standard of living. You've got to meet our standard of living. So, so, so really we're not doing anything different to what they would be doing if they moved into the cities. You know, we're trying to have a bet each way here, it seems, Keith. Well, yes yes and no. I think, see, what you've, what you've got to look at is that Aboriginal people always moved around. You know, if I... So the last say, thing you'd want to be doing is building a house. Well, we forced them into this situation. Over 250 years, we've, we've brought people who who walked around their country in smaller groups. They weren't in thousands because the land won't, you know, people talk about, you know, um, thousands of Aboriginal people. Land's not sustainable. You know, they, they walked around in smaller family groups. We suddenly put them all into one area. Wadai's got 37 different clans of people in one spot. And we've seen the state of the public pool that's been built there. You, you, you know, so this is the thing, Keith. Right. My personal view is, yep. look, if you want to be connected to country and if you want to live the life of your ancestors, go for it, okay? But we're not going to be building houses and putting in infrastructure and all those sort of things out there. If you want that, 
you've got to drift into the cities like everybody else. This is, this, I mean, I don't understand why this is such a difficult concept, why it is regarded as taboo when it is absolutely practical and pragmatic and, and just makes so much more sense. That way, if you want to live that traditional lifestyle, you're not going to be, you're not going to have an albatross around your neck in the form of a house that you're supposed to look after, which is not fit for purpose. It doesn't deal with all the traditional things that you've got to do, like separating uh, yeah, um, people based on, uh, you know, the, the way it's done with names and, 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 skin groups. and all that, yeah. uh, skin groups and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just, I just don't get it, Keith. And, because, and, and, if, you, if you bring them into the city, they will be lost. But Keith, I'll tell you something, okay? A really, a really good Greek friend and client of mine said this to me once, and it has stuck in my head like lead. He said, Leon, one generation has to sacrifice. And he was talking about his family coming from Greece, Right. And what he meant by that was there is one generation that has to pay the price for the advancement of the generations that come after it. And as an immigrant myself, my, my family uh, who came here from Malaysia, I can see exactly what he's talking about because my parents had to make that sacrifice for the betterment of, of their children. And it worked, as it has for many migrant families, you know. Yeah. And, and, and what I'm saying to you is we have done every possible thing you can do under the sun in the last 200 years from almost decimating, well, effectively decimating the Aboriginal population in Tasmania to what we're doing now, which is... Um, in my view, just a gross pandering and just over-the-top um, um, uh, political correctness and all that sort of stuff. And not, it, it, I mean, look at the state of crime in Alice Springs and in Darwin as a direct result of what happened at Dondale. Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that children need to be locked up and put in spit hoods like what happened, you know, what we saw in Four Corners. What I am saying, however, is we, what, we, what the, uh, the Labor government has been carrying on uh, doing for the last little while is just as bad because you've got kids running amok. I mean, Katie Wolf on her show the other day, you had the ma manager of, um, of uh, Kazali's, uh, you know, saying on a Friday afternoon in the middle of the day, a whole bunch of kids walk through and just run amok in Kazali's, the youngest, you know, uh, aged 11 years old or thereabouts. Why were they not at school? And you talked about this, you know, the importance of going to school. We've had other guests on this podcast that talk about the importance of going to school. One of the most respected people I think we've ever had on this podcast was Craig Glass, the, the former principal of Halbury um, School here in Darwin, the private school. And he said, 
You know, we have Aboriginal kids. We have a large cohort of Aboriginal kids at the school and it, they, they never get to uh, start school on time because you know, things are happening on country. They can disappear for sorry business and uh, be away for weeks. How on earth is a kid supposed to have a chance if they are not allowed to be in a situation where they're going to thrive? He told us out of the entire cohort that was there at that time, there were two kids that he could see potentially going on to succeed. My grandmother told me, Keith, the way out of poverty is through education. Mm, 100%. So, you know, I've I've probably done a little bit of a scattergun approach, a little bit of um, uh, throwing up in a bucket here, but... I want to see Aboriginal people succeed. I absolutely do. But I just think the way that people go about doing it is just not right. You've got to rip the Band-Aid off and do things that are going to see perhaps just this generation is going to suffer, but the generation afterwards is going to have a damn good chance at breaking out of that cycle of poverty. What would it I to say to you that you can have both? That you can have well-educated Aboriginal people living in remote communities, in houses that they have grown to, um, to look after, in communities where they grow vegetables, where they become um, more self-sufficient, um, where they can have Western education and maintain their strong culture, um, whereby the uh, a lot of Aboriginal people, we talk about overcrowding, and Aboriginal people are migratory. Um, they also... We'll work out who's got a full fridge. Um, they will work out, um, oh, yes, so-and-so's coming back from the mines. He's going to have plenty of dough. So, you know, we'll go and stay with uncle for a couple of weeks. Um, if you look at Menangrida, Menangrida during the dry season is not overcrowded. Menangrida during the wet season, all the homeland people come in to men and greater because they're going to be cut off from uh, um, access to uh, to food and everything. So they come in. And so you get immense overcrowding. I think you can have both. I really do. I think you can. And, and we do things to Aboriginal people. We, we keep on trying to change things for them rather than supporting them determining challenges and solutions and bringing about change themselves. Um, I think it will be a very, very sad day when we take this um, approach that, and look, I respect you for being honest. Um, We need to be able to have honest conversations without people getting upset because somebody has expressed a belief 
an opinion um, and an opinion and of course very uh, and a lot of times in this space people get very very upset because of what you just said oh you know you can't say that you can't say of course you can say that you want an answer to it you've said to me keith please explain why we're doing this why why have and, and i think um <laughs> poor old uh the poor old premier of WA, or might have been Tony Abbott, one of them said, spoke about lifestyle choices, and, and I think he was castigated for that for, for a long, long time. But, uh, Leon, I think that there is a great opportunity for Aboriginal people to stay out on country and, uh, and build and be sufficient, you know, to build communities... Um, to be electricians, to be plumbers, and and to be trained, and it's but it's about a change that happens on community, not in the not in the city. I mean, what are they going? How are they going to be employed in the city? What are they going to do? Well, what I would suggest doing? to you, there's a lot more opportunities in the city than there are uh, out in you know not, the bush not not for a, not for a 35 year old aboriginal man or woman that has got uh, a, a minimal uh, level of um of education and and i know you're saying oh we have to sacrifice a um a generation i don't believe we have to do that i believe that if we get back to that simple program i spoke about you will change a generation of children who will change things out on community, who will become builders, who will say, right, this is the way we do things. We've got to start having having our, our vegetable gardens. We've got to start growing things ourselves. We've got to start fixing our houses ourselves. We've got to have plumbers and electricians and and learn these trades that if, if we're going to and accept the fact that white man has made them live <coughs> white fell away in houses. I mean, the craziest thing was that we've asked people to crap in the same place every day. What a stupid thing. And to live where you've had a crap. I mean, Aboriginal people didn't stay living in the same place that they had a crap in. They kept on moving around. And when they came back, you know, nature had cleaned the place up. But, you know, there were no plastic cups, there were no bottles, there was no beer. So... I think that we could, if you want, if you say, well, okay, Keith, there's two things we can do. We can we can try and do it your way and influence a generation of children in a positive learning way, or we can force Aboriginal people to move from the country into the cities, which... No, 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 I never said that. No, no, okay. I said give them a choice. Okay, you don't have to. I mean, for goodness sake, I, this is not Nazi Germany here. Right, right. okay, well, so you're not going to service. We're not something. building houses. Like, yeah. I mean, you yourself just said, you know, forcing, you know, forcing them to crap in the same place that they've crapped in before and that isn't the way it's done. Well, I agree with that. I, I'm just saying that you, you live a traditional lifestyle or you come into the city. I think you can have. You don't get. Pardon? I think you can. I think you can have elements of a traditional lifestyle um, and a Western lifestyle 
living and walking side by side on the basis that um, you still have strong elements of your culture which you practice out on country which wouldn't be practiced here in Darwin um, and that you can have children who have grown up within that rich culture but understand that if you change environment, um, you have to do it yourself. We have to stop doing things for Aboriginal people and doing things to Aboriginal people. We have to start supporting. So I, I, I and this is part of the, this is a part of the challenge, Leon, that we have been doing things to Aboriginal people for so long. That's what Malcolm Turnbull said. And well, it, it's and it's the truth. But we, even though he said it, we continue to do it, and we have Aboriginal organisations that continue to do it to people out on country. They have to, you know, they have to walk themselves. We have to support the leadership taking back control of their people. Let them, see, one thing, say to to Aboriginal people, you determine your own codes of conduct. You make the rules on how you want the men to treat their children and treat their women. You make Mm -hmm. the decision because... The Western way of saying you've broken the law, we're going to chuck you in jail, doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. But if it comes back to empowering people and we have disempowered them and continue to disempower them, and I mean... Don't you think that that trying to build a Western lifestyle in the middle of nowhere is disempowering them? No. I I don't... what would happen? Can I ask you this, Leon? Hmm. If we took Somali refugees and we put them out in a remote community, within no time at all, they would have they would have gardens. They uh, market. I mean, they'd have vegetable gardens. They would change it. They would they would have houses. They'd maintain the houses. They would do you know. I, I, this is what I think would happen. They would either die out there or they would drift right. straight back into the city. Uh-huh. That's what I think would happen. Yeah. Uh, well, I just think we have the rose-coloured glasses on. I yeah. think we are bending over backwards trying to create utopia and it doesn't exist. And I, I, I say that with great respect uh, yeah. I don't mean to offend anybody at all, and well, I would be happy to, to, to be proven wrong. And I would, you know, I, I'd gladly accept being wrong about this. But based on what I have seen and read over the course of my lifetime, I just, I think what we are doing here is, is not working, has never worked, has continued to create greater and greater social disharmony, um, for everyone concerned, not just Aboriginal people. And I think Aboriginal kids should be given the best possible opportunity to learn, get a good education, and get the heck out of that cycle of poverty. Uh, and some people on our podcast, I'm sure, would say to me, Leon, what are you talking about? The, the Aboriginal culture is so rich. There's 60,000 years of culture. And, you know, it, it, being an engineer doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it's more about, you know, have you learnt 
this particular ceremony or that thing. Well, you know what? If that's what you want to do, go and do it. But if you want out, if you want a, a lifestyle that is, a, that you know, as you yourself said, people feel better when they, they're in jail here than they are in their communities. Some people. Well, you know, uh, there, there, there is a path out of that. That's what I'm saying. Pete's yeah. been uh, absolutely quiet. I don't know what Pete's thinking, but I'd be interested to know. <laughs> Difficult to get a word in there, <laughs> fellas. Sorry, I thought you were just too scared to say anything, oh. man. <laughs> I wondered, is your microphone still yeah, on? Pete? Yeah, I just ran a check on it before. No, it's all good. Um, there's a few things that come to mind for me, fellas, and, you know, again, I, I don't pretend to have the answers, but it's always staggered me why we've asked a race of people who historically have been nomads and why we've asked them to sit in the same box day in, day out. I've never understood it. And as a real overarching, oversimplified uh, version of the events, it's never made any sense to me why a bunch of white blokes in Canberra determine where and why all the money gets sent around this country for, for people such as you know, the Indigenous people of the Northern Territory and, and all other parts of the country. And we see the budgets go up and up and up and up every year and nobody but nobody can tell you where it was spent, why it was spent, how it was spent, was it a good outcome, was it a bad outcome, what did we learn? Because three quarters of that money is spent on determining the uh, on auditing the outcomes and auditing the money that was spent. Pete, you know, I mean, the amount of times we talk about government in this country at state and federal level doing things where if they were a business they'd be shut down. That's just another (laughs) example of that. Are you talking about Menzies? Um, Well, I'm I'm talking about (laughs) we see so many things. They, I mean, you know, I keep thinking about. It, it still troubles me to this day when we had Chris Walsh on months ago, probably even a year ago, talking about the allocated budget for housing in the Northern Territory being in the hundreds of millions and how much actually gets spent. It's it's a puftenth of the total budget. And yes. I don't understand it. Yet we're in debt up to our eyeballs and still... And, you know, something that I wanted to touch on earlier because I think it's still really relevant is when you talked about generational change and, you know, things move at a glacial pace, I believe this current Northern Territory government uses this generational change as an out clause for no results. I believe the whole of the Australian government operate that way. Mm. Not just the antique. This is a massive industry that employs hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. The, the money, and this is I talk about. I I, I quite brutally and regularly uh, type on places like LinkedIn and Facebook about all the black and white snouts in the trough, yep. feeding off the disparity and a trickle, an absolute trickle coming out yeah. at the end of the trough that's supposed to be go out and create and facilitate change. It's bloody ridiculous. Yeah, now, and when you uh, touched on before, um, you know, letting Aboriginal people determine their outcome, um, I, I, I don't have an issue with that in principle, but the first word that came to my mind, was well, not even a word, but the first thing that came to my mind 
was a little thing known as ATSIC, and we all know how that turned out. I'm I'm more referring to um, behavioural stuff. Right. Okay. I'm I'm, ta- I'm talking about behaviour. So we've got 38% of Aboriginal people in our prison up here in the Northern Territory are there because of a violent act against a family member or a member of their community. Mm. Now, they have to make a decision. Well, they don't have to. They don't have to do anything, quite frankly. They can do nothing. But I think that what we've done so far in the way we perceive help, we are helping, doesn't help at all. And I'll give a classic example. If you tie your shoelaces to your child every morning, they will never learn how to tie their shoelaces. Tell me about it. So the the to me, and look, I'm, remember, I didn't get past year 11. <laughs> if we were to say to Aboriginal people, listen, we're not getting this right, why don't you have a crack at getting it right? Why don't mm. you? Yeah. I'll tell you what we'll do. You make up your own codes of conduct around the way that you want to treat your women and you want to treat your children. And what we'll do is the police and the government will back that code of conduct. So, in other words, when the police are called, the police are called because somebody in your community has broken your code of conduct, not Whitefellas' code of conduct, your code of conduct. So you, there's an element of responsibility that has been taken away that we have to give back. Now, mm. I understand what Leon is saying, and, yes, that that if you could do it, which you can't do it and you'll never be able to do it, um, that could be a way forward. But in reality, that will never happen. You know yeah. it will never happen. So... And I, I say this with the greatest respect. We've got to put that to the side at the moment, Leon, and look at how we do facilitate change, not how we make change. How do we facilitate it? Mm-hmm. And I believe we facilitate it by empowering the leaders. Now, there's so much bullshit that goes on out there. You'll get mining companies go out there. They'll select who the leaders are because they're the ones they bribe to sign all the documents and then they can do the mining. You know, Whereas the real leader, they've actually uh, got him on the wall and he's lying out there street boost. Um, and w- so we've got the white fella manipulating the situation for Aboriginal people on country to get what, what they want. And I, I think that's why I think, Leon, given that um, you have put forward, you know, a thought and whatever around what possibly should happen and what we should stop doing, which is building houses. <coughs> we know that given that we have a massive industry based around keeping them out there, you've got to keep them out there. You've got to keep them poor. You've got to keep them uneducated. We must keep them uh, with, with medical conditions because our whole industry based on that collapses. So there's more to this than just saying, look, they should all come here and, and live in here because then, you know, we can maintain houses. But, Leon, you've just, you've just destroyed a whole industry. I have. On the dis- well, it needs well, to be I, destroyed I then. I, I accept that. I accept that there's a and lot I- of uh, construction companies that will be very upset uh, at the thought of 
of uh, the, the whole um, construction of, of remote housing it gets shut down. That, I, I can see that. But you know what? They'll be building yeah. houses in Darwin and Alice Springs and yeah. Tennant Creek and Catherine. That's the way I look at it. Um, and that's why it will never happen because uh, possibly too not. much money. Possibly not, and, and too much politics mm-hmm. as well. But, you know, I want to have some common sense discussions on this podcast. I know there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that uh, will quietly uh, reach out to me and say, well, you know, thank you for saying what I've been thinking but too afraid to say. So mm. that's the reason why I, I, I do what I do. Yeah. I would, I, would love to, I would love to have a bet with you, Leon. <laughs> really, you know, I don't, I don't go to the casino and I don't bet on horses. <laughs> but I will back myself, and I'll, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, whatever, whatever you want to bet, I'm, I'm happy to bet it because I have such a strong passion and belief that the answer to this is the children, and it is, as you said, it is education. Mm-hmm. But I believe that we can educate those children out on country. I really, really do. Um, And I believe you. I believe you, Keith, right? But I also uh, have had the absolute privilege of of rolling out over 250 episodes of this podcast and speaking to a lot of people, including teachers who have taught in remote communities, who have told us on this podcast in no uncertain terms, it ain't great out there. Oh, and not. those kids, it's those not. kids are not learning. They oh. are not learning. And, and you are so right. Yep. Can we talk a little bit about um, youth? This the, the kids running amok who went into where? Kazalis? What's Kazalis? Uh, um, so, yeah, it's best you don't know about it, Keith. If you're not a gambler. <laughs> it's a tavern if you want to get into gambling i can recommend there's a beautiful new grandstand at the race course you might like to go and sit in air conditioned comfort oh really how was that funded i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) oh look i would love i don't know well as you said the wonderful thing about podcasting you can you can carve this up later (laughs) i would i would really really love to to talk about um the kids running amok in the streets Um, And it does get back to, once again, uh, Aboriginal people taking control. Um, We have a situation where um, there are a a certain cohort of people who love to abuse the white system and who love to say, um, you mob can go and get stuff, we're not listening to the police, Uh, you're all racist, you're killing our people and whatever. Um, A lot of these children who run amok... Um, they come from a place, and they're no different to many children right throughout the world who do this. You get bikies who join bikie clubs because they feel comfortable there. They're looking for um, uh, uh, recognition. And a lot of these kids, now I, I've had experience with these kids. I've, there's, there is a... Um, a young girl of 13 years old who's very bright. Um, she great at sport, ran off the rails. She started running with the street kids. Um, the system, the merry-go system, merry-go-round system um, didn't work. She's only just got out of Dondale um, and there's no change. 
Now, her parents wanted this new Aboriginal-controlled boarding school. They, they, they were interviewed by the ABC and they said, we need this. And the reason why I believe it will work, it will get, it's the same thing. You have in Darwin a, a, an Aboriginal code of conduct for kids and the, you only need one code, one thing. If you stop going to school, then you go to the Aboriginal controlled boarding school. Um, that's the trigger, Leon. The trigger, as we've said before, is education. And whether whatever is happening in the child's life, we know that's reflected around school. So you the idea of having a an Aboriginal controlled boarding school is that one that gets around those Aboriginal people uh, down in in the capital cities that will talk about white fellas controlling Aboriginal children doing all sorts of terrible things, another stolen generation or whatever. But if you've got a set of rules laid down by Aboriginal people, where Aboriginal people say, you stop going to school, you go into our boarding school. Within that boarding school, if you have housemasters who are ex-Aboriginal Norforce, who are strong, respected Aboriginal people, who the kids love Norforce. Who doesn't love guns and tanks and all that sort of thing? You know, they will, and they will respect them. So you've got that first element of respect. Then you have strong uh, women and men around them. Now, this, this boarding school could be run by Catholic education. But the first thing that happens when you go to the boarding school is you go out to Bush. You work out, you take the kids out of their environment that they have, you know, they don't go to Kazali's, you take them right away and you have them, you sit them down, you work out what their passions are, what their dreams are, what their emotional capabilities, their mental capacity and their physical capacity, and then you develop educational programs around that. Not the same, not the, not the system that we try and teach children in schools because they're disengaged from that system. Where do you live, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> Random question? Yes, I know. I know. I live in Nightcliff. Okay. Uh, because what you're talking about already exists at Where? Albury School, right? No. But seriously, you could go and check it out. Go check yeah. it out. It doesn't exist uh, at Berry. It, no. it, it does. It does exist. Uh, and and I, I just think you're making my argument for me, Keith. Um, well, I've, I've had your... On the subject, on yep. the subject of crime, youth crime, uh, we've had the mayor of Palmerston on this podcast several times, and I have. She's actually taken me on a tour of the things that they do here in Palmerston to keep crime low, and and one of the things that they do is they pick up the kids after school, they take them to the YMCA youth centre here, and they look after them from three o'clock in the afternoon till nine o'clock at night when the Larrakia Nation bus takes them home because that is the problem. The problem is what is happening at home with alcoholism, with drugs, with uh, dysfunctional families, with uh, all those sort of things. And 
it's an opportunity to keep the kids safe for their waking hours at least. And and, and those things are working, Keith. No, they are absolutely working. They are working. Well, tell me why crime is out of control. Tell well, I, I tell you, in Palmerston, it is it is uh, certainly doesn't appear to be as big a deal as it is in places like Darwin and Alice Springs. And neither of those two councils have taken any of these programs on board. Um, the thing is, you've got to look at um, where the family groups live, mm-hmm. where the disengaged family groups live. You've got a lot of disengaged family groups living in um, around um, Malak, around that area. Yep. You may well have you may well have less disengaged family groups living in Palmerston. Oh no, uh, I think you, I, I think I don't think that's the case at all. And I can Palmerston tell you, has has traditionally had uh, low socioeconomic um, uh, housing. In, in a number of, uh, particularly the oldest suburbs, but it's there uh, and it, it requires management at different levels of government. And I've got to say, uh, a hat off to the Territory Government and to the Palmerston City Council for the way that they have worked together to minimise the issues that are coming out of this. I mean, Pete, you were on all of those podcasts. I mean, am I talking out of my backside here? Uh, not specifically, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm getting so you're more jump on the fence, like you. No, did. I'm getting more confused by the minute, to be brutally honest, because mm. I see the passion in Keith's eyes, um, and I can see where he's coming from. Uh, I, I listen to what you're saying, and and you know what you just said is right. We have been shown all this stuff. I think what it highlights to me is exactly what I said before. There's just there's utter confusion in this whole system and there's not one system. There's 50 systems trying to run side by side and what I do know is that it's not working in its entirety. So what I would like to ask is of the wonderful Lord Mayor of Palmerston who refuses has refused for the last three years to meet with me. Really? That's and unusual. even consider talking to it, to me. What have you done, Keith? Is it was this is this your <laughs> alter ego going? Uh, <laughs> no, who knows? Um, the what are the academic outcomes of the children who supposedly uh, this system is working so well for in Palmerston? What are the academic outcomes? Because you know something, what you suggested to me was. Mm something that only suits the Mayor of Palmerston and the people of Palmerston, which is to make sure that these kids don't run amok, so we're going to give them something to do. It's got absolutely nothing to do with academic outcomes. I, I, didn't, say, I, I didn't say it did, mate. I, I didn't say I know, that. But, but and I'm, you, I'm, I'm totally on board with you about academic yeah, outcomes. And, and, and if you want to change something, then don't assume for one moment that what Palmerston is doing is a success. It's not. All it's doing is a it's a band-aid. Those children that they're ushering to, you know, to control and, and keep them occupied, it's like it's like giving a child your a phone 
so that they'll play a game on there and they won't do any mess anything up in the house or putting them in front of a television set and letting them watch cartoons so they won't be a pain in the ass. Well, they're, 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 well, they're doing a bit more than doing. that, Keith. Well, no, that's, that's not true. They're doing more than that. They're, they're engaged in, in, in breakdancing, in basketball. They're doing and they're, they're actually involved in activities. And where, and, does, and, where, where and, does that fit? Where does that fit in adult life? Well, you know what? It, it, it's, a, it's a damn sight more than what would be happening if they went straight home. Well, you know something? What I can say to you is that the, what I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting is that we are giving them an environment whereby they have that cultural nourishment. We are not going to get Aboriginal people saying, oh, look, you know, you don't care, whatever, whatever, because they are in control of it. You are establishing real pathways into adulthood. You are establishing pathways based on their passions. What do you, I mean, do they ever ask in this Palmerston model, do they ever ask the children, what do you want to do when you become older? What do you want to be? What is your yeah, passion in life? I think, I think they do do that. But yeah, I've got to, I've got to uh, make a correction there or at least a clarification. It's not just Aboriginal kids. I understand that. Go to this, you know. It's anybody, any kid is of, of course it is is of entitled is. to go to this thing, but they, they do. They have so, so social workers there or youth workers. I've seen them, and they are engaging with the kids and talking to them and and, and giving have, them yeah. and doing all those things that you, you you're talking about, Keith. You know, but I accept this is not a substitute for uh, you know a, a school education. But have you, have you spoken it, to the mums, Leon? Uh, they love them. Yeah, well, I haven't, but I, I can I can tell you that when I spoke to the Mayor of Palmerston, uh, that she is definitely speaking to uh, the the parents of of some of these children, and 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 they are very very grateful for having this here. Well, because because it's 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 like the video came. It's actually taking the level of responsibility away from the parent. It, it, it and, is because the and parents putting, are just and putting not it with, doing it. Yeah, and putting it with somebody else. But and the thing is that, that there are so many parents who are good parents whose kids run amok. Now, uh, absolutely, you, uh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, Pete and I just put our hands up for, uh, for our listeners. Right? We know. We know, so, but so, we but we are we are educated parents, and we, you know, we we're, we've been given opportunities to learn and to understand how to deal with our children, perhaps a little bit better than others. We don't have substance abuse issues ourselves, and so we may be possibly, with respect, better be, uh, better equipped to deal with some of this stuff. Look, we've, right? we've got, but when you have parents who are not in that situation, it's hard. It's look, hard. And, and what, that, what they're trying to do is to break that cycle, uh, to minimise the, the harm to children, give them a safe space to be at, because what did the mayor tell us? There are people that are on the streets, the kids that are on the streets at all hours of the night, simply because it's safer to be on the streets than to yes. be at home. Yes, mm. but but under the Mayor of Palmerston's program, you're actually taking them back home again. Well, you can't you can't keep them out all night, can you? Well, yes, you can, <laughs> because they actually because they actually stay in the boarding school 
in the Green Skin Academy, Academy well, Boarding School. They, they stay there. And on the weekend, on the weekend, they go hunting and fishing. Um, they're Look, I, you know, we could talk about this all night, but the one thing that I'm hearing is that once again, government, the Mayor of Palmerston is, is doing an itsy-bitsy program that has no real vision for a child to become a, um, uh, an active person, an active part of society with a job, with a career, with a passion and a future. They, it's a band-aid situation for the moment that they're living in that we will do all this after-school stuff. That's if they go to school, that we'll do all this after-school stuff and we will contain them by somehow keeping them entertained until we can drop, drop them off home. I mean, we've got kids kicking out air conditioning units so that they can get out of house at night. I mean, we, these are good parents. Are they... They try and lock their kids in their, their bedrooms to stop them getting out. Um, mm. So, and because we've got, you know, we've got these itsy-bitsy programs that um, that I really feel in some ways is, is um, and I'm going to be rather brutal here, um, I, I find that is child abuse. I think it's absolute child abuse to have a program that suits the community because they're not breaking the law and that they're doing break dancing, they're doing they're playing basketball and they're doing all these things that are keeping them occupied, but we don't do anything that is actually going to change their lives. And this is what it's all about. We have to be able to encourage the children to change their lives. And it gets back to the Go Kids Club operating within that um, within that school where they've got Jonathan Thurston or Adam Goods, you know, every morning when the child opens up their laptop, because they get a laptop, they open up their laptop and there's Adam Goods saying, Leon, it's great to see you this morning, mate. You've done really, really well yesterday. You know, and with AI, with artificial intelligence, we can actually, I mean, there's just some crazy stuff around. Have a look at a thing called, um, oh, I can't think of it at the moment. You've got, you can build um, bots now that will learn your personality and will react to your personality and will give you good advice. So you can have Jessica Malboy talking to you every, well, <laughs> Peter Smile thing. Um, I'd love to have JT contact me every morning when well, I get there you up. go. Wouldn't you yeah. look forward to it? Yeah, I would. You'd go to school for that. You'd, you'd jump out of bed in the morning and think, I can't wait to have a yarn to JT and what is he going to tell me about what I do? Not only that, you will want make sure that you do things that's going to make JT happy. Yeah, true. Because he is somebody you admire and you want to make – you want to make him happy. And it's the same thing with Jessica Malboy. You know, to have Jessica speaking into the lives of 5,000 children every morning that have a personal relationship with Jessica because you have developed a computer program with 
artificial intelligence that actually speaks to them and sounds like Jessica, and for all intensive purposes, the child thinks it's Jessica. It's far better than going playing basketball after school and being minded and controlled and then dumped back home again with no real vision and no care about a child's future. I think that is disgusting. That really makes me grumpy because that's all it is. You know, as much as they say it's working, you will have another generation of children running them up who will be the children of those children who went and played basketball and had a great time after after school at Palmerston. But you think that what's going on in Alice Springs uh, is is perfectly fine as as an alternative? It will be Alice Springs that actually ends up doing the pilot. We're very right. close. I, I I ran a um, I put a um, um, we should be down the pub having a beer at the same time, you know. <laughs> I uh, and I'll send you the link. Um, I did a post on Facebook down in Alice Springs um, on the Green Skin Academy. Uh, the response was hugely positive. I think there was probably 80 people responded, giving it thumbs up and whatever. People could see how it worked. Aboriginal people could see how it could work. Uh, Jimmy Cocking loved the idea because it, it allows those strong Aboriginal people in, a, in an environment to be able to speak into these kids' lives. And it, it gives them, I mean, it gives the, the children the ability to go hunting on the weekend, to go fishing, to learn about culture on country. Um, so it's satisfying the needs of, um, of the Aboriginal community as to what they want to do in speaking into the lives of their children. Dondale doesn't do that. In fact, if you want to make Dondale success, get rid of all the white fellas and just have black fellas looking after the kids. And you will have a massive change in Dondale. Because I mean, remember when they burnt down part of the school? So my adopted father, who's um, quite a famous Aboriginal man, he's a Tiwi man, we put to the NT government that we take uh, 14 traditional men into Dondale for 14 days all around the country and that those men just sit and talk to the kids because a lot of those kids that are in there were initiated children from down in Alice Springs and they fight between the mob up here. There's always stuff going on. A lot of them have varying degrees of fetal alcohol syndrome disorder or deafness, but they respect traditional lawmen. Now, if you had, it was only going to cost $34,000, and that included paying them, I think, $250 a day for doing this. But because the white system needed to know what they these elders were going to talk, they needed a, a structure and they needed to know what was going to be done each day. And I would say, no, you've got to stay out of this. Let them do it. But this is the problem our white system has, Peter, is that we want to control everything. We've mm. got to step back and let Aboriginal people do this. And this is why I'm 
I'm excited about what's going on down in um, Alice Springs. Um, any politician that decides to run with a program that will have all the children off the street within weeks, so imagine this. If we, if we did this in Darwin, all those kids running amok, within a month, you'd never see them again because they'd be in, in the boarding school. They'd be actively doing stuff on the weekend, fishing and hunting and having <coughs> playing sport. They're gone, but they're in a nurturing environment that is focusing on a career for them. That's got to be better, far, far better than what they're doing at Palmerston. Right. Well, look, I, I didn't suggest for one second that Palmerston was the uh, answer to everything. <coughs> a, a, no. a, a solution to a issue that occurs between the hours of three and nine uh, at, at uh, three in the afternoon to nine in the evening. Mm -hmm. I think the mayor has done a good job in relation to that, but obviously uh, you're entitled uh, to, to uh, differ on that. Yeah. Look, Keith. Um, I wish you all the best with what you're doing because at the yep. end of the day, if what you're doing works, I would be on board with that, you know, and that, that, that's really where I think we both agree. We are looking oh. for outcomes that are going to be positive, that are going to mm. drive change and that are going to be good for the future. Well, that, that's exactly, uh, Leon, that's all we want. Yeah. All we want is the best for mankind, you know, it's, and for the kids and for everybody to be happy chappies, wherever they want to be happy chappies. So um, on, on, on that note, I'm going to um, I'm going to wish you well. Um, I am also hoping that anyone that listens to this podcast that has an opinion on this issue or has some background uh, or experience in relation to uh, the issues that Keith has discussed, we would love to have you on the podcast uh, to talk about this. I have somebody for you. Great. The, the lady, the lady who's been out there for 40 years. I'm sure she would love to come on. All right. We'll and, get her and, name and details uh, after the yeah, uh, podcast. Fantastic. And I'm sorry if I come across a little strongly on. Um, not at all. Not at all. It's um, important to come across strong and passionate. That's Leon what it's likes all an about. opinion. Don't get me. Don't uh, get him started on that. He hates what it when I sit. Leon loves an opinion. He hates <laughs> it when I sit on the fence. So being strong is a good thing. And I got to say to you two gentlemen, before we do head off, thank you because uh, any podcast that uh, discusses Nazi Germany, the Taliban, and Norforce is a podcast <laughs> well worth listening to. Thanks for coming on, Keith. Uh, thanks, guys. And thank you very, very much for this opportunity. And, and Leon, we've got to have this bet. We've got to have this bet. Well, I would, I'd, you know, um, I've enjoyed this a lot. I really have. And I can't thank you both enough for this opportunity. I really can't. Thank You're you. Welcome. That was Keith Gregory on the Territory Story podcast. Don't forget, you can check out this episode and all our other episodes on our website, territorystory.com and we'll catch you again for the next episode you've been listening to the territory story podcast with leon logan nathan and peter gowers for more episodes search territory story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com 
The Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.